Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Glad that you're here. Are you glad that you're here today? Good. Glad that I'm glad that you're glad that you're here, and I'm glad that you're here too. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and I've been looking forward to, to being with you today. In spite of the monsoon outside, you made it out. Does anyone ever uh, wake up on rainy days and feel a certain pain in their body? Is that weird? Isn't that? I know there's a science behind it, but this morning I thought, why do I feel like today? Like I actually fell on my ankle two weeks ago, and then someone graciously reminded me today, it's raining outside. I'm like, oh, I guess that stuff is true, right? It happens. But um, if you're hobbling, no judgment, especially for me. I actually had to text my wife and say, hey, I didn't wear the boot this morning. Imagine that, a person like me just being stubborn. I said, will you please bring the boot? I don't mind hobbling around stages a little bit, but it's going to be better. So um, hope that you're not in too many aches and pains like myself. But hey, you're here to hear, to, to hear me complain about my foot. Aren't you? No, you're not. You're not. You're not here. You'll listen. Thank you very much for that. I just want to say we'll listen. Listen, I'm, I'm glad that you're here. Been looking forward to today's message really for a couple of weeks as I've been uh, preparing it. And we've been talking this month just really about the things that we are calling uh, relational vampires, the things that, that really take control over in relationships. In the last couple of weeks, we've done everything we can to look into the scripture and to look into Proverbs and to look into what Jesus said. And the the truth is that there are things that are present in our relationships that can derail it. And often, if we don't understand what those things are and seek to take uh, control over those, they will derail us, whether we know it or whether we like it or not. Today's one of those that we really have a love-hate relationship, and it's the idea of control. Now, when I say the word control, I don't know what comes up in in your mind when you think about it, but this is one that I I think really all of us have a love-hate relationship with. Now, it's a little bit different than like two weeks ago when when I was with you and and sharing. We, We talked about anger. We say the word anger, a lot of times the, uh, we go to the negative, right? I say, well, anger, anger can always be, you know, be bad, even though there's a justified sense of anger and there's an unjustified sense of anger. Well, today's a little bit, a little bit different. When the idea controls up, whether you would confess it or not, I want to help you confess it today, that you like control, don't you? Don't you? But you don't want anyone else to have it, do you? So I say it's a love-hate relationship. Listen, when you have control, you like it. This is when you are driving the car. This is when you are the boss. And this is when you are the decision maker. And this is when you're almost in some sense like a silo where you're in your own bubble. You're creating your own schedule, right? It's Saturday and there's, no, there's nothing else on your agenda. Or there's no one else telling you what your agenda should be. So you do what you want and then life happens, right? And then you go to work. Or then you get married, and then all of a sudden, it's not just about what you desire. But, but everyone loves control. Doesn't matter your personality. Doesn't matter your background. Some people are passive. Somewhat, they're quiet, and they're, they're a little bit passive. Some people are more aggressive. There are some extroverts and some introverted personalities. It doesn't matter. Everyone likes control. When you're behind the wheel, it's everyone else that has the problem, Right? And I I am a perfect driver. If everyone, like I mentioned before, if everyone came to my driving school, the world would be at peace, right? At least at at every intersection. I'm like, okay, I talk about driving too much, but it's just, it's one of those things. And, And so, but when you're not in control, everyone hates it, right? 
I don't know about you. What is it like for you when you sit in the passenger seat? Do you have that, that friend? I have a friend that when I you know, drive down the road, which isn't too often with, with this friend, but when I drive down the road, he's like, do you see that car? I'm like, yeah, do you? You're going to take a left, right? Would you like me to take three rights? I mean, you know, or however that works. Like, you know, when you're not in control, you tend to kind of want to be in control. But when you're not in control, this is when it really becomes difficult in, in so many ways because you're not the decision maker. Because you either have to submit to someone else's control or you fight against that control. And when we're not in control, that's when so many emotions rise up. We've talked about other relational vampires, this, the idea of anger, right? When we're not in control. But there's a silver lining in some of the control, isn't there? The silver lining in the control is not always from a bad motive. When I think about the silver lining of control, it's often when I think about even parenting, I want something for my kids, right? And so I'm, I'm looking to create an environment where they obey and where they listen. And if they listen and they stay within the boundaries that I set up for them, then, then their life will be good, right? Or so, so I think. But when I'm not in control, which is always because they are in control of their decisions and their actions, I sort of lose it. I know I'm unlike you, right? But I sort of lose it as a parent. Like, I want to stay in control. But the silver lining in that, the motivation of that is good. I want what's best for my kids, right? I, I, don't, I don't want them to touch the hot stove. I, I want them to make good choices around their friends. I want them to draw boundaries and even receive my boundaries. And so I, in so many ways, want to set up parameters and boundaries, which are good. But when I lose control is when we get frustrated, right? Be it every time you talk to your mom on the phone or a parent, if someone laughed out loud and hope your mom's not near you, right? And so whether you're talking to a parent or you're talking to a son or daughter, whether it's a workplace issue and you go into and you know you're not in control and you don't like the person that's in control, it's a hard thing to deal with, isn't it? It can derail your heart. It can derail your sense of joy. It can take you off of your path. So how do we deal with this issue around control? There are two factors that we'll talk about today that are really weapons that people use. Now, other people and, and ourselves, right? The two weapons around control is, um, number one, it's a threat. The first thing is threat. So what do we do when we want to when we use the idea of threat, we say, you do this or else. And this one's common in, in, in parenting, right? If you don't do this, this will happen to you. Some of that, again, is a good thing because we're setting up consequences. We're setting up boundaries. But then the kind of we tip the scale sometimes in this, don't we? With friends, with family, with kids, you do this or else. In some form of relationships that are unhealthy, maybe even narcissistic type of behavior. This is very common where someone threatens something. If you do this, I will. If you do not do this, I will. I remember as a youth pastor, and I've heard it many times since working with teenagers, I remember as a youth pastor, a common threat, and this is one of the worst case scenarios of the extreme, is that um, sometimes the, 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 the guy would say it, sometimes the girl would say it, but one of the ultimate forms of threat in people is to say, if you break up with me, I will what? Take my own life. That's an ultimate form of threatening, isn't it? And that idea is just control. 
They don't want to lose the relationship, so they will do anything or say anything. I'm not saying that stuff doesn't happen. Most of the time, it does not end in a suicide. Most of the time, it's an attempt for control. However, it does sometimes end in someone harming themselves or other people. But that's just ultimate form of control and manipulation. Now, that's the extreme. The other sense of the extreme is sometimes sometimes I'm guilty of this, and, and I'm sure you are too. How about the silent treatment? Uh-huh. How you doing? Good. My wife's like, no, you're not. You're lying to me. What I do, what I say. I'm like, nothing, I'm fine. You know? And Josiah, who's always buttoning in, what are you guys talking about? You know? I'm like, don't worry about it, man. How about the silent treatment? Anybody? Come on, confess with me. Anybody? Uh-huh. You lie. Those of you that didn't raise up your hand, you lie. Like, that, that, that's the opposite, right? I'm not going to use words to control or to manipulate you, but I'm, I'm going I'm to give you a silent treatment. Some of you wish your spouse would use the silent treatment. <laughs> that's okay, too, you know? That's okay, too. But listen, no matter the extreme, how about the second one? The second one's guilt. How about guilt? This can be done with words. This can be done with scenarios. This can be done with the silent treatment as well, right? But you want to cause someone pain. That's also a form of manipulation, right? When we're not in control and when we're hurt by someone else, we want to make sure that they feel our pain. And part of communication, and sometimes I would say the motive here is not always bad. You want to communicate to that other person why you feel the way you feel. You want to almost justify the way that you feel by communicating with that other person, don't you? But then when it turns wrong and it turns like an attitude or an action or something that we do that's not pleasing to God or to others is when we use guilt. You know why I feel this way. Because of you, right? Or if you would not have done this, I would not. Look what you have done. I can't count on you. How about this one? After all I've done for you, no one, listen, no one can live under the pressure that these two words of threats and guilt can cause on a human being. No one. Why? Because the, the playing field today is even for all of us. We are all guilty. and We all make mistakes. We all do things or say things that hurt other people. We've all hurt other people and been hurt by other people. But two of the improper responses of threatening and guilt, sometimes done with words, sometimes done with action, sometimes done without any words or action, are wrong and can and will derail any relationship that you're in. Even Jesus faced this scenario found in... um, The Gospel of Matthew, which is one of the four accounts in the New Testament, the portion of the scripture written just after Jesus um, uh, lived and died and was buried and rose again from the grave. There are four accounts that made the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the first account of Matthew, a contemporary, a friend, a learner, a disciple of Jesus, recorded this incredible story. I mean, even the end, remember I mentioned there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The end of the Gospel of John actually says, if all the stories of Jesus were recorded, there would not be enough room in all the world to contain all the stories. Just an incredible statement from John. So we don't have every story of Jesus recorded and written down, but we have some incredible ones. 
And there was an account where Jesus was actually telling the disciples what he was going to do. Sometimes they kind of one ear in one ear and out the other. There were stories of Jesus teaching the disciples. And then after the actual inter- interaction and teaching, some of the disciples would have like a sidebar conversation. Like, hey, did you know what he was just talking about? Like Jesus spoke in these parables. And, and you, <laughs> you ever been in a class or a lesson? You're like, yeah. And then you walk away going, what? Well, they kind of, I mean, they had these moments with Jesus. Even to them, Jesus was unclear at times, but he taught in these parables. And even Jesus told them why he taught in parables, because if he talked plainly, Jesus had a lot of enemies. And if he spoke really plainly all the time, the enemies would attack. You know, Jesus' public ministry only lasted three years. Why? Because Jesus, being God, claimed to be God. Jesus was not a popular teacher to everyone. Because Jesus, being God, was obviously flipping up the religious system flipping upside down the religious system that they had. And so Jesus spoke in parables. They didn't understand Jesus all the time. But other times, Jesus spoke super clear, super straightforward. And this one, he didn't have to explain what he meant. Found in Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to read a couple of verses at a time. Jesus talks to them about his death that's coming. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 21, you'll see it on the screen. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. That's pretty plain, isn't it? Now, where Jesus was talking with the disciples, he told them very clearly, guys, here is what I'm about to do. The prophecies have said this for a long time. I told you John, John the Baptist, who kind of came just before Jesus, was claiming that Jesus was coming. John the Baptist said this, look, the Lamb of God, which was a sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, we believe he was around 33 years old when he died. He started his public ministry at 30. So I've been in ministry like five times, six times longer than with Jesus. Jesus, these stories were captured from three years of ministry. Three years. Pretty good return. We're still talking about it 2,000 years later. But Jesus, the reason his public ministry was so short was because of what he was coming to do. And Jesus, speaking very plainly, I have come to give my life as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins for all people. So Jesus, speaking very plainly, said, I am going to die. I'm going to die on the cross. On the cross. I'm going to suffer. And when I suffer at the hands of not, the, not, not a gang, not a street crowd, but the elders. And when Jesus said the elders, what he was saying was the religious, the ones that are in charge, right? In some sense, the government, that's what he was saying. They will capture me and I will suffer and I will give my life. Why? As a ransom, as the forgiveness of sins. And on the third day, I will be raised to life. Now, The disciples didn't say, hey, come over here. What did he just say? Because he had already told them. He had already told them what what he would be doing. And so this is a little bit different. Look in the next verse. Look at the next verse. Verse 23. Verse 23 or verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. Never. This shall never happen to you. That's pretty bold, isn't it? Peter took him aside. Now, he could have said, hey, 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 wait, 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 can I have the microphone for a second? No, no, no. He took him aside and said, no, 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 this isn't going to happen to you. 
Now, was this a good intention from Peter? Absolutely. He loved Jesus. He was beginning to follow him. He was beginning to see who he was. And, and we assume by the timing of this, this is probably two years after they met. I mean, they're still getting to know each other. Jesus' public ministry was really just exploding. People were curious all the time as to where Jesus was, where he was going next. First century historians said that, you know, basically the rumor mill, right? No Instagram. Sorry, they, they couldn't catch up with them that way. But the rumor mill was always like, where is he going next? First century uh, historians write about all of the whole world speaking about what he was doing and where he was going. And so Jesus was a public, a pretty public, fast-growing figure, right? But two years in, he says, I'm about to die. And Peter pulls him aside and says, no, never, Lord, never. This will not happen to you. Now, I would say this is a good intention, right? I, I read those first few verses and I say, he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, he loved Jesus. He protected Jesus. A lot of control happens out of a good intent. A lot of control happens from a place of good intent. Even if you read about narcissism, like extreme control, extreme, like in some ways, self-idolatry, like it's all about me. I never see anyone else. Like even sometimes narcissistic behavior, though this isn't a psychological teaching, nor do I presume to be a, uh, a go-to person that understands narcissism. But even in so many ways, narcissism comes from a place of good intent. Sometimes it's self-preservation, self-protection, looking out for me. Well, this, this is different. I mean, Peter says, wait, hey, I'm looking out for Jesus. Like, no, you, I'm not going to let this happen to you. In so many ways, it's just coming from, from a heart that loves Jesus. So much of control, even though it happens from a place of good intention, is still wrong. How does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond when he says, this is my purpose, here's what I'm going to do? And for you, so many of you can relate when you think about the ways that you are maybe controlling or ways that other people have tried to control you, how do you respond to it? What do you do? Now, look at what Jesus says to him in verse 23. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, don't tell grandma that, okay? Don't use this one the next time you're talking to your mom, to your dad, to your sibling, right? Or in the workplace, get behind me, Satan. That's not what I'm about. I, I don't recommend that. I don't recommend that conversation. But what was Jesus doing? Jesus was saying, I will let nothing take me off my course. I will let nothing deter me from my mission. Now, even from Jesus, that takes courage, doesn't it? But most of us, when we're in a place where others are controlling us and we feel the mounting pressure that I'm not good enough, I'm always being told what to do or how I should do it, or I can't ever live up to someone else's expectations, we lack the courage to stay the course. Well, Jesus knew his course Jesus knew exactly what God the Father set out for him to do, which was to die. A little bit less than a year later, we have a record of Jesus just before he died, praying. The Bible even says that he was praying so hard and sweating so hard, even to the point of blood being shed, that he was praying in agony because of what he was about to face. This was not easy because it was Jesus. This was hard because while being fully God, he experienced the pains of humanity. 
that Jesus knew what he was setting out to do. And Jesus knew that he would let nothing and no one deter him off of his course. Get behind me. Get behind me. You do not have, and Jesus says, you do not have in mind what God wants. You only have in mind what you want. I wish, I wish that we could all live with that same mindset when we are dealing with other people in the ideas of control. I wish that we could respond that way. Here's three things I want to share with you before we read the last few verses. Three things. Number one, this is what Jesus did. Know your purpose and don't be swayed. Know your purpose and don't be swayed. Now, in the midst of that control, coming from you, coming from someone else, if you know your purpose and you determine that you will not be swayed, it will give you courage and it will give you the strength. Like Jesus, being focused on the cross, being focused on the mission, he knew what God the Father had set out for him to do. Numbers, uh, number two, focus on pleasing God more than others. This one's hard. This one sounds good, doesn't it? And even Jesus said, hey, you don't, telling Peter, listen, while, while, Je- while Jesus was not saying that Peter was Satan, what he was saying it was that he had in mind the things of Satan. He had in mind the things that, that Satan would not want. And so he said, you're thinking more about you. You're thinking more about the ways of what would please you rather than what would please God. Now, what if in the situation that you're dealing with, you could somehow shift your mind and shift even your heart to think about what God desires for you rather than what the other people around you desire for you? It would change it, wouldn't it? It doesn't make it easy. It certainly doesn't make it easy when you start thinking, well, if I do what I really believe is best, if I do what I really do believe honors God in this situation, I know that he, she, they aren't going to get it. And I know that it will be another disappointment, right? Fill in the blank. And I've heard as a pastor, and I've dealt with even for myself, but I've heard as a pastor from some really difficult family situations. If I do this, it's going to cost me this. If I do that, it's going to cost me this. In so many ways, it's a lose-lose, isn't it? But it's not. When you truly believe that what you will do will honor God with your life, it's a win. People didn't understand Jesus. People aren't going to understand you. People didn't understand when Jesus said what he said, but Jesus knew his purpose. And Jesus did not let even Peter, who he loved, sway him. Jesus did not take the easy route. And so many times it's easy for us to take the easy route, isn't it? But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus knew that the route that he was taking would be painful. Jesus knew that the route that he was taking would be hard, but he knew that it was worth it. Why? Because he was focused on pleasing God rather than man. What's powerful is that a couple of years later, the early apostles after Jesus died was buried and rose again from the dead. Um, Peter and some of the other apostles actually say this very same thing again, right? We are here to please God, not man. And if you're here to please God, sometimes it's impossible to please man. And sometimes when you are working to please man and you do what you know would please other people, 
Sometimes it's impossible to please God. It's a hard road, isn't it? It's a hard choice. But Jesus did it. Why? Because he was focused on pleasing God. He was focused on doing exactly what God had set out for him to do. The third thing is this, to draw necessary boundaries and stick to them. Here's the most practical thing that I can tell you today. You have to establish different boundaries than what you currently have today. You have to establish different boundaries than what you currently have today. If you have a relationship that involves threats, if you have a relationship that involves guilt, you have to establish different boundaries than you have today. Write this down. It's a book called Boundaries. I recommend it. I think almost every single every single week. It's one of the most sold um, uh, books and, uh, that's really ever been printed, Boundaries, by Townsend and Cloud, Dr. Townsend and Dr. Cloud. It's a really practical book from friendships to siblings, to parents, to, 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 to co-works, or co-workers. It really lays out how do I establish the necessary boundaries to make sure that I do not give in to the control, to the manipulation, to the threats, and to the guilt. How can I stay in a very healthy place emotionally? Look at verse 24 and 25. Verse 24 says this, Then Jesus said to his disciple, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. So after Jesus says, no, I'm not going to let you sway me. Here's what I'm doing. Jesus draws that boundary and says, no, here's my focus. Then he turns and he offers them eternal life. This is what he says. I mean, this is just an incredible verse. Whoever wants to be my disciple must also take up their cross. Now, this is a mind-blowing verse, right? When Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross. When Jesus just told them he was dying on the cross, what does that mean? It literally means that they must come to a place where they relinquish control. Relinquishing control is not always a bad thing. Sometimes relinquishing control can look like submission when you give, give yourself over to the desires of other people. That marriage requires submission, doesn't it? It requires giving yourself over to someone else. And you know what Christianity is all about? Christianity is not only just about what Jesus Christ did for you and the story that we're reading about right here, about dying on the cross and rising, raising again from the dead. But Christianity was offered to all people everywhere the Bible says that whoever would confess that they are a sinner, whoever would acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and follow him could have eternal life. And so Jesus, I believe chronologically, potentially the second time he ever shares this news with the disciples and says, if you want to follow me, then give me control of your life. And that control, while it can be damaging when it's done for self-pleasure, when it's done for self-gain, when it's done in manipulation and threats and guilt, giving yourself over to other people, in this case, the most important of all, God is a beautiful thing. That today... Today's a day where we can draw boundaries in our relationships. Today's a day where we can learn to not be controlled in negative ways. But most of all, today's a day where we can learn to give our control over to God. I grew up in, in the church and heard the message of Jesus for a long time. But when I was 18 is when I realized, man, I've, if I really give my life over to God and I kind of lift up my hands and just say, God, whatever you want to do with me, I want you to do it is when I gave control over my life to Jesus. And I'm telling you, 
It was an incredible day that started an incredible journey for me. And that day I realized that that control, if given over to God, that God would use my life. And today I want to invite you to consider that. On the practical side, as we've been talking about, control can seem like a bad thing. Control can seem like one that has caused hurt and pain, and it certainly does, but not always is it bad. Is that control, when given over to someone who loves us and someone who cares for us, it can be a beautiful, beautiful thing that can start a relationship with Christ. In starting point, and from our pastors to our other leaders, we're talking with people all the time almost day in and day out, through conversations here in the middle of the week, through conversations on the way out, where people are experiencing Christianity and hearing the story and the good news of what Jesus did for them. Every single day we get to share with people, with places, or people in different places, about what Jesus did for them. Today, I hope that you'll consider giving control over to Jesus. Let's pray.